You're listening to Season 9 of Bionic Planet. Today's episode is the sixth installment in an ongoing series on how carbon finance works on the ground in Kenya. But we start more than 10,000 kilometers away in the Amazon forest with the story of an alien invasion and the people who survived it. It's a tale of tragedy, courage, and perseverance that features prominently in my upcoming book, Almir Suduri was 10 years old when the first logging truck came to his tiny village deep in the Amazon forest. It came to chop a single stand of centuries-old mahoganies, and it came with the grudging approval of the chiefs. After all, they reasoned, it was just one truck, one stand, one time, and for a good cause. These chiefs weren't the grizzled old men you're probably imagining. Most were barely into their 30s because more than 90% of everyone had died in the five years before Elmir was born in 1974. 90% gone. They lost their mothers, their brothers, their sisters, and their lovers. They lost almost everyone who knew anything about governance. The surviving chiefs, shamans, and elders lost faith in their own abilities to serve their people because their time-tested traditions had failed. Prior to 1969, Brazilian authorities categorized Elmir's people as an uncontacted tribe of the Amazon, but in reality, they had contact, sometimes peaceful but mostly violent contact, with neighboring tribes, rubber tappers, and even Brazilian explorers going back decades. One of those neighboring tribes called Elmir's people the Suduri, but Almir's people called themselves the Paitea. In the regional Tupi dialect, Suduri means enemy, while Paitea means real people. Due to a miscommunication, the Paitea were entered into the lexicon of indigenous people as Suduri, or enemy, in the lead-up to their first contact with Brazilian authorities, which took place on October 7, 1969. Today, their name is hyphenated, Paitea Suduri. The Paitea Suduri had lived in harmony with the forest for centuries, but they didn't live in harmony with those who invaded their territory. And invasions increased dramatically in the years prior to first contact, as Brazilian authorities encouraged westward migration into the forest. It was a bloody period, and the Paitea Suduri held their own in combat they couldn't hold their own against European diseases, such as smallpox, measles, and the flu. That's what got them in the end. The elders died and kids became chiefs. One of those kids was a 17-year-old named Itabira, who learned to navigate the outside world of Brazilian society as the world in which he'd grown up disintegrated. By the way, if you can't find any of this online, it's because it's all original reporting and my book hasn't been published yet. Anyway, Itabira realized early on that to save his people, he had to push the Paitea Suduri and their struggle into Brazilian awareness. To do that, he and other chiefs stopped fighting illegal loggers and started colluding with them to finance trips to Brasilia, the capital of Brazil. Soon, they were chopping trees to feed their families and pay for medicine, and by the mid-1990s, they were known as the Logging Indians, despised by environmentalists who saw them as traitors to the cause 
and riven internally by fights over how to manage their resources. The Paitas Suduri broadly split into three factions. One that embraced the destruction of the forest for commercial gain, one that opposed that destruction, and one, the largest of them all, that wanted to save the forest but needed to feed their families. Elmir was born in 1974, five years after first contact, and by the time I met him in the late aughts, he was leading the tribe's anti-logging faction. To save the forest inside his territory, he had to first persuade the outside world, meaning most of us, that his people and all indigenous people need help, not condemnation, if they are to end deforestation. That's because far less than half of tropical deforestation comes from corporate clear-cutting, and most comes from poor people acting out of desperation, not greed, as we've seen in this series focused on Kenya. Illegal logging is something of a hybrid because commercial entities are buying that illegally harvested timber, and corrupt officials often turn a blind eye to it. Plus, standing up to loggers is dangerous. I can't count the number of indigenous people who have been killed doing so, and loggers even put a price on Elmir's head shortly after I met him. Elmir put his life on the line to save his forest, and he eventually slashed deforestation by developing the first indigenous-led RED project. RED, with two Ds, stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation, and it usually works by helping forest people develop sustainable ways of making a living, such as beekeeping, agroforestry, and the harvesting of non-timber forest products, such as Brazil nuts. The overwhelming majority of community members voted in favor of Elmir's red strategy, but it wasn't universal. The logging faction opposed it, and the loggers, ironically, found powerful allies among the wackier elements of the environmental and social justice movements. The Indigenous Missionary Council, or SIMI, for example, threw their support behind the illegal loggers who had put a $100,000 bounty on Elmir's head. They launched a flagrant disinformation campaign that characterized the logging ban as a ban on traditional hunting and gathering, and they portrayed the head of the logging faction as the voice of the people, despite the fact that his faction lost the vote. The whole thing was bizarre to anyone who knew the truth, and that, fortunately, included most indigenous leaders across the region. They openly and vociferously denounced Simi, and I'll link to my coverage of that in the show notes. But most media swallowed Simi's lies, hook, line, and sinker. Despite these efforts to sabotage it, the project succeeded in slowing deforestation, at least for a few years. Then, sometime around 2015, gold and diamonds were discovered in the territory, sparking a tsunami of illegal invasions that tipped the balance in favor of Simi and the loggers. Deforestation surged and the project is currently suspended as a result. Opponents gleefully celebrated this tragedy and used it to validate their own ideological biases. And what are those biases? Here's what Simi says. Quote, the environment and the cultures living in harmony with it should be the basis for human development and societies, not an item of the market economy. 
Greenpeace also opposes RED, and here is their justification. Quote, one must question the motive for this ongoing reliance on market-based mechanisms, the very system that has led humanity to what is now a point of systems collapse. Now, we all agree that climate change is a result of the greatest market failure in human history, one that values a dead forest more than a living one. And I created Bionic Planet to unpack all of the efforts to correct that failure, not just go on and on about red all the time. I keep coming back to red because the torrent of disinformation spewing out of the pages of certain newspapers is making it impossible to have a rational public discussion on the subject, and forests are dying as a result. There is an incredibly rigorous and decades-long debate over how best to fix this mess, and my goal with Bionic Planet is to mainstream that legitimate debate so that you can see what's true, what's false, and where reasonable people can disagree. Everyone should be free to express their views, but no one is allowed to support their beliefs with opinions disguised as findings or with half-truths, innuendo, and facts that are cherry-picked, decontextualized, and distorted, which is what Simi, Greenpeace, and a lot of those opposed to market mechanisms and the whole ESG movement do, as I pointed out in episode 77. I mention all this because I ran into Elmir at year-end climate talks in Dubai, and he's still fighting for his people's forest and still arguing, rightly, that we all need to support people on the front lines of the climate challenge. Finance is one way we do that. I'll link to stuff I've written about the Paitasuderi in the show notes, but for now, the main thing to keep in mind as you listen to today's show is that all of these efforts involve real people in real communities facing real challenges that need our support. That gets lost in a lot of the abstract discussions and technical terms we throw around, such as, for example, our tendency to differentiate between climate benefits and co-benefits. Climate benefits are the reductions or removals of greenhouse gases, while co-benefits are the social, economic, and biodiversity impacts. In the Suduri project, the co-benefits are things like support for sustainable livelihoods in an indigenous community, the promotion of gender equality through support for women-run enterprises, and the restoration of habitat for rare and endangered species, among other things. But the term co-benefits is a misnomer because these activities make the emission reduction possible. Whether you're talking about standalone projects or the new jurisdictional initiatives that I'll be covering in more depth in Season 9. Today's guest, Jeffrey Mwangi Wambugu, is the lead research scientist at the Kasigao Corridor Red Project. We sat down to discuss the project's theory of change, another of those buzzwords that leaves people cold. In the midst of our discussion, he said something profound. In our theory of change document, we actually recognize what you are calling co-benefits. C-O as co-benefits. C-O-R-E. So it's not co-benefits, it's It's core benefits. Co-benefits. Particularly for a project like ours. These benefits are increasingly being recognized as core and essential to achieving the climate objectives. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon. And we know it's ugly face, we should put a big fat price on it. And of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, 
We broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine it through the eyes of Jeffrey Mwangi Wambugu, lead research scientist for the Kasigao Corridor Red Project, the very first project to earn credits for saving endangered forests under the verified carbon standard. This project is important for several reasons. To begin with, it's not just the first red project certified under the verified carbon standard, it spearheaded the very first red methodology generated under the standard. It also faces an uncertain future because Vera retired that methodology last year in favor of one that's less subjective. Methodologies, as we learned in episode 81, are like recipes for mixing existing tools to create a new project. Methodologies are built with the best available science, established through multiple iterative rounds of expert review and public consultation, and they're designed to update over time as realities change and science advances. Under the new methodology, which again we'll explore as the season unfolds, this project will get less credit for reducing deforestation. But it's also not getting credit for activities like the ones we learned about in episode 90. That's where we met George Thumbi. The same carbon project pays for the tree nursery he runs and the training he conducts. But it gets no credit for the carbon those activities capture, for reasons we'll touch on today. As this series unfolds, you'll see the question isn't whether the project is or isn't having a positive impact. It clearly is. The question is how big that impact is. We'll pick that up later today and expand on it in later episodes. But first, to Jeff. My name is Geoffrey Mwangi Wambugu. I'm the senior research scientist at Kasigao Project. Under me, I have a social scientist and a biodiversity scientist and two data clerks. I did my undergraduate degree in wildlife ecology from Moy University here in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I did a master's in environmental planning and management also here in Kenya. Mm -hmm. My PhD is also in environmental planning and management, focusing on the impacts of humans on terrestrial ecosystems. I also hold a postdoc fellowship with the Smithsonian Institution. It's based at Mpala Research Center in Nanyuki. That is the central part of Kenya. Uh, my specialty is pogenic impacts on ecosystems, both terrestrial and aquatic. So he spent his entire academic career studying the ways human activities impact forests, fields, rivers, lakes, and the creatures that live in them. At first, he was more interested in which land management systems were friendliest to forests. For the undergraduate, I was looking at the impacts of uh, management systems on forests in the coastal Kenya. So at that time, uh, the one that worked best was those forests that were managed by the government. Those ones that were managed by the community, they were not doing very well as a result of erosion of the community values. 
Mm, okay. Traditional values, uh, traditional systems of managing forests. This is something you find happening around the world. Indigenous communities manage their land sustainably with future generations in mind. Then something happens. In-migration, degradation, a combination of both, and the forests suffer, as does the climate. For his PhD, Jeff expanded his research to include our impact on waters. But for my PhD, I looked at uh, land use impacts on uh, rivers between uh, different land use systems. Which one is associated with the best water quality? And I found out that, again, the most pristine ecosystems, like forests, had the best uh, water quality. Mm -hmm. Both for aquatic macroinvertebrates and also the physical chemical water quality. This is another common theme. Remember David Okul from episode 86? The basis of life is actually in forestry. Most mm. people say it's water, but when you really think about it, most water sources actually come from forestry. So it might be the chicken and egg thing, but I think that it starts from forestry, then it goes to other biomes and other systems. Now, if you're an ecologist, you're thinking, well, duh, this is pretty basic stuff. Terrestrial systems interlink with aquatic systems, and human systems interlink with ecosystems. It all blends together. But way too many people miss or dismiss these interlinkages, which are critical to understanding how this all works. Biological systems are different from social systems, and legal systems are different from economic systems. They shouldn't be, but they usually are. And the challenge isn't just about forcing them into alignment, which can be like hammering square pegs into round holes, but rather about finding areas where they should naturally align and then making it possible for that alignment to happen. I'm hoping to unpack a lot of these technical issues this year, which is Season 9 of Bionic Planet. If you like the show and want more and better episodes, you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. By the same token, if you are an ethical business looking to reach a global climate-aware audience, you can sponsor the show by reaching out to me directly at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, you can support the show by giving me an honest five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. And now back to Jeff, who started teaching after getting his PhD. That's where he learned about Red and Red Plus. I was teaching in environmental science in a university before I came here. I focused on the use of geographical information systems in management of natural resources, mm -hmm. particularly uh, forests and other ecosystems. And I was also teaching a bit of environmental law. Mm -hmm. Red Plus was my favorite subject. And after about six or seven years of teaching in a university, I needed something new, so I decided to come over here and try something else. How do you measure the impact of human action on nature? What is there a way you can su summarize that in a hundred words? Yeah. 
Okay, there are many ways of mm. doing that. There is a wide range of methods that you can use to measure the impact of mm-hmm. humans on ecosystems. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones is to check on uh, species diversity. And usually you can compare a pristine habitat and one that has got some form of anthropogenic influence. More often than not, you find that an ecosystem that has been disturbed has a poorer species diversity. And this can be found also in our ecosystems here. Mm-hmm. There is one ecosystem that we've been measuring for the last 10 years, the mountain. So we have plots along the elevation gradient. Mm-hmm. And preliminary analysis of that ecosystem shows that areas that are more disturbance are attributed to poorer species diversity. Mm-hmm. So that's just one way of doing that. There are many other ways. And another issue that's really interesting is you're here to measure human impact, then yeah. you're here to change human impact. Yeah. And that brings us to this issue of theory of change. Yes. What is the theory of change at work here? Okay, a theory of change is a hypothesis or a roadmap of how a project intends to meet its objectives. For example, if you Mm. are coming from Chicago to Kasigao, you are going to take a taxi to the airport, then you take a flight to probably somewhere in Europe, Mm. change your flight, then fly to Nairobi, take a train. More or less, something like that. It's a roadmap. It's a plan of how you are going to achieve your objectives. But before you actually have that plan, you must have the objectives first. Mm -hmm. You must know what you want to achieve. So for a project like ours, we have about three theories of change. So we have the overarching theory of change, which is based on the objectives of Red Plus to conserve forests for the benefit of climate, people, and biodiversity. Mm-hmm. That's the overarching. But then we have several other theories of change in our project. But for us, we only have two others. One is the community theory of change. And then we have the biodiversity theory of change. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk a bit about each. For the community theory of change, before we start a project, we have to engage communities and really know what they want the project to achieve. So we engaged our communities to understand what are the things that they want the project to achieve. So I'm sure you have heard about the locational carbon committees. Yes. We'll learn about Locational Carbon Committees, or LCCs, in later episodes. But the gist is they are locally elected committees that engage the carbon project and decide things like how the community spends its carbon income. Keep in mind these are communities, not monolithic entities. They're comprised of farmers and pastoralists, Luya and Maasai. They don't all agree on every item they discuss, but instead they reach decisions through a democratic process that we'll be exploring in more detail later in this series. 
That's important because people who ideologically oppose these projects have a nasty habit of dropping into them and finding people who lost the vote or maybe didn't understand the issues thoroughly, as happens in every election everywhere on the planet. And then they present them as victims of some sort of land grab. Cherry-picking evidence, as we saw in episode 77, is a primary trick of science deniers. That's what Simi did to undermine the Sudoriforest Carbon Project, and we'll look at other examples as Season 9 unfolds. No one claims these projects are delivering paradise on Earth, or that every member of every community endorses everything the projects do, or that every scientist agrees with every element of every methodology. And in fact, setting unrealistic expectations for science is another hallmark of science denial, which is uh, covered in episode 77. What proponents argue, and the evidence shows, is that these projects are reducing deforestation by reducing poverty, and they're helping people improve their lives. They're succeeding where traditional philanthropy and aid have failed, and they're measuring their impact with methodologies that developed through multiple iterative rounds of expert review and public consultation initiated under the IPCC. They're succeeding as intended, in a transitional way that stops the bleeding now and stabilizes the patient until something better comes along. And they're often being pilloried for not delivering fountains of youth or raising people from the dead. But as I mentioned, this project is the first RED project certified under the first RED methodology to be approved under the Verified Carbon Standard. In later episodes, we'll look at the evolution of that methodology, which, as I also mentioned, is being discontinued. That's what makes this project an interesting and important case study. The project will continue, but within a system that's evolving, and that evolution will be a central focus of Season 9. Now back to Jeff Mwangi and locational carbon committees. In our theory of change, we believe that those are the best representatives of the communities Mm -hmm. because they are drawn from the six project locations. They are elected in a way that's fair and transparent. And uh, we believe that they are the real representatives of the communities. So these are the people that we engage to understand what issues they would like the project to solve. So we called them in a workshop in 2011, and uh, the workshop is designed to be highly consultative, ensure that every member of the LCC is participating. And the first thing that we do is to create a vision statement in that workshop. Each LCC has five representatives and everyone is given a card. They are asked to write one thing that they would like the project to address. So everybody writes something. So at the end of that exercise, we have 35 cards, each having an issue that we want the project to address. Mm -hmm. So the issues that are the same We are lumped together and we use that to write a vision statement. Okay. So it it comes from the ground up. Yeah, from the ground up, yes. Okay. So and uh, if somebody wrote two issues instead of one, they didn't follow the rules, (laughs) we put that card aside. We don't throw it away Mm. because probably somebody had two issues that they think are almost the same. 
so we don't throw it away we put it aside and check whether it is similar with any of the other issues okay and that vision statement that we craft from that exercise is displayed for the rest of the workshop so that it serves as a reminder of what everyone sees the, it everyone says this yes, is why we're here why we are here then after that we count the number of cards then after that we rank the issues so we know which are the most important issues mm-hmm. and we select five five with the highest frequency because we can't deal with all of them right right we prioritize five and those issues we call them focal issues mm-hmm. so we select five focal issues and then randomly redistribute the group each one to deal with one focal issue for mm-hmm. the rest of the workshop the next thing that we do is we do something that we call the without project scenario so there is without project scenario tells us how those communities are thinking about that particular issue and how it will change in the next 5 to 10 years if we don't have a project and we allow them space to think about how they want to think about it mm. how they perceive it how they see the issue what are the key themes and uh, once they do that then uh, we redraw that in what we call the problem flow diagram we put it in a problem flow diagram showing that this issue originates from this thing so we are able to understand uh, where the issue originates from and how it will change over the next 5 to 10 years you start with the objective then you go back and you map the yes, causes and exactly. then you try to say okay how do exactly. we okay yeah so once we do that the next thing that we do is we do with project scenario mm. okay. so if we have a project what are the strategies that we will use to resolve the focal issues so again they go back and now using the problem flow diagram they first start by if the focal issue was human wildlife conflict example which came up quite a lot in the yes, conversation today. that is always one of our major focal issue mm-hmm. if the focal issue was human wildlife conflict which we, we ask them to change it to sound more positive so they'll say something like less human wildlife conflicts so it's an objective rather than yes. yeah okay and then uh, from the problem flow diagram then they can input the strategies that can be used to lead to less human wildlife conflict gotcha mm-hmm. so at the end of that exercise what we have is the communities themselves have are telling us how can you resolve the human wildlife conflict and it is from that diagram that you are able to draw the project strategy so if uh, the issue for example if we go to human wildlife conflict the issue could have been the wildlife comes out to look for water so if wildlife had water in their natural areas then there will be less human 
wildlife conflict. Gotcha. So the project strategy automatically becomes provide water to the natural yeah. So how do we provide water? We have water tanks, we have a uh, dam scooping, we have a uh, boreholes, etc. Right. etc. So that's why you have these tanks out there. We exactly. saw these tanks. Exactly. Like how do these tanks end up scattered all over the it, yeah. was, it came from exactly. this exercise. Okay. Yeah, it came from that exercise. Okay. And it's also water provision both inside and outside in the community area. So that is automatically a project strategy. Let me clarify here. We alluded to tanks and greenhouses, but those words don't really describe what we saw on the ground. The tanks are massive concrete reservoirs filled with water to draw elephants away from villages. The greenhouses are George Thumbi's tree nursery, which we visited in episode 90. George isn't just growing tree seedlings, but helping farmers shift to agroforestry. That reduces deforestation by improving soil fertility, which helps farmers grow more crops and reduces their need to chop trees. Agroforestry also increases the amount of carbon sequestered in soil, but that's not factored into the project's carbon accounting because those calculations were too uncertain when the project launched. Instead, they're considered a positive externality, something good that happens as a byproduct of the project. Most of those farmers are women, and I spoke to some of them while there, but the interviews are in Swahili, so I need more time to structure that in a way that's both entertaining and informative. That's the kind of activity you'll be paying for if you become a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionicplanet. Jeff, by the way, wrote a paper on core benefits in the Kasigao Corridor Project, and the World Biodiversity Forum accepted it for their June conference in Davos, Switzerland. But then we ask ourselves, how can we be sure that we are achieving our objectives? So we have to select indicators, and we have to collect data on, that in, on those indicators. It's a project strategy to deal with one of the focal issues, which was environmental degradation. One way to deal with environmental degradation, particularly in the community areas, is to have a greenhouse that is aimed at helping plant more trees in the community areas. Mm -hmm. So it's a direct project strategy coming directly from the theory of change. So the, the, the water tanks came from... This the human wildlife interaction. Yes, exactly. How do we correct that? Put water yeah. out there. Yeah. The next one was degradation. How yes. do we correct the degradation? Go yeah. back and look. Yeah. And that again, that's why even though the trees do enhance yeah. the carbon content of exactly. the landscape, that's not their objective. Their yeah. objective is to meet the theory yes. of change. Exactly. Okay. Then uh, how do we measure our impact? We measure impact yeah. by selecting indicators. And these indicators, we have two strategies. The first strategy is called in-house reporting. In-house reporting is during our day-to-day -day activities, we task them with collecting data. For example, one of the indicators we use is bursaries. Bursaries, yeah. Bursaries to address a focal issue that was poor ed education. We wanted kids to be more right, in, right. Yeah, to access education. So bursaries automatically becomes one of the ways to address that. 
Again, education became a focal issue because the communities wanted it. As we learned in episodes 87 and 88, one reason people were chopping trees was to pay for college. Bursaries or scholarships removed that need. I mentioned earlier the current methodology is being retired in favor of one that's more standardized, while the ultimate objective is to move towards jurisdictional crediting. I'm worried that this, combined with sloppy media coverage, will create so much confusion that people give up on conservation finance. If that happens, the people we're meeting on Bionic Planet will end up suffering the most, and deforestation will surge. I'm working on another episode that should clear some of that up. It looks at the origin of current methodologies under the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. Back in the 1990s, the IPCC identified several land change models that accurately projected deforestation around the world. They concluded that all of the models they looked at worked, but they didn't all work the same in all circumstances. The world's leading land change scientists basically agreed that there will always be a degree of subjectivity in how models are selected and applied. You'll learn how they overcame that later in Season 9, but for now, let me just throw an analogy at you. The same one I made in Episode 75, medicine. We don't expect doctors to treat all patients and all diseases with the same medicine. But for some reason, people expect a simple model to emerge that accurately predicts deforestation in all forests under all circumstances. That's the mistake The Guardian made last year when it applied one poorly calibrated, untested model to a bunch of projects and concluded that the projects and not the model or their application of it were wrong. It's a silly conclusion that's done a lot of damage, as you'll see later in this season. Another thing we'll be looking at are efforts to capture more of the social and biodiversity benefits that Jeff is describing. Vera, Gold Standard, and others are developing ways of quantifying gender equality and habitat improvement, while Wildlife Works, which developed the Kasigao Corridor Project, is spearheading the creation of a whole new standard called Equitable Earth, together with my old employer, Forest Trends. These aren't just interesting ideas. People's lives depend on our ability to measure and our willingness to pay for the activities we're learning about in this series. I also rely on willingness to pay, your willingness to pay for these shows. If you like the show and want more and better episodes in Season 9, you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. By the same token, if you're an ethical business looking to reach a global climate-aware audience, you can sponsor the show by reaching out to me directly at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, you can support the show by giving me an honest five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now back to Jeff Mwangi and the role of education in carbon finance. The link becomes very clear Mm -hmm. because if we have more educated society, then people can access jobs that are more decent and they'll stop getting into the forest to cut down the trees. Uh, where was I? I was on... Uh, how do we measure the impact? How we measure then, the yeah, impact, I, yeah. yeah. So we have... Uh, and bursaries as a measurement is Yeah, so yeah. we 
measure, we look at the number of students who get the bursaries. Mm -hmm. We look at the amount spent on bursaries. We look at the ratio between girls and boys. We look at the classroom projects, the number of classrooms that we have supported. Another in-house report we get is from the greenhouse where mm -hmm. you are. So every month we mm -hmm. get information from the greenhouse on how many trees have been propagated, how many have been bought from the community, how many have been planted, which species we get all that information. What is the survival rate? Once they outplant, they measure how, what is the rate of survival. So we have an idea of effort versus impact. Yeah. I can see how this data would provide an indicator of success, but do you have um, any um, baselines, like any, any, anything yes. where you can say this number means this? this yeah. Or is, yeah. Yes, indeed. So th that is in-house reporting. But mm. we also have another way of measuring our impact. Mm. And this is called fieldwork. I mentioned earlier that we have two uh, resident scientists. We have one social scientist and one biodiversity scientist. These ones are tasked with implementing fieldwork research that is designed in a way that is much more scientifically robust. Mm -hmm. such that uh, that data can inform us on various things that we need to know about. One of them is called the household survey. The household survey is done biannually, once every two years. The first one was done in 2011. And how we did this, we randomized in all the six project locations. Each... Uh, project location having 30 households. So we had our baseline survey in 2011 and the questionnaire is designed to look at the baseline scenario and every two years we go back, we interview the same households. Mm -hmm. The intention is to follow these households until the end of the project. Of course, you have people coming in and others going and uh, you find that we don't have all the 180 households that we originally uh, interviewed in, in the first household survey, but the large proportion of them is there. So we are able to follow them and every two years we analyze this data. One of the questions that we ask is what is the impact of the project? Mm -hmm. And from the response we get, we can be able to gauge whether we are achieving our objectives. And that's just one of the many questions. So it's not yes. like you're yeah, that is it's just not like sitting out there. Like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. It's a huge uh, questionnaire. It takes two months to cover all the 180 <laughs> households mm -hmm. and another two months to enter the data, another two months to produce the summary report. Okay. And then in the following year, we do a follow-up SBAA workshop. We go back to the community, we present those results, ask them whether they think that this is a true reflection of what uh, they think. And from that, then we can always use adaptive management, design, remodify, and change a few things, track a few things here and there to ensure that we align better and we have better results in the next iteration. 
What kinds of um, adaptations have you had to make? For example, one of the most difficult things to to deal with in the theory of change is the problem of attribution. Saying that uh, you attribute a certain intervention to mm-hmm. a certain impact. It could be you. It could be somebody else. It could be something else that has changed, uh-huh. that has led to better impacts or not. So in one of the data sets, we had that problem. We couldn't really separate water projects that are in schools and purely water projects. So you have to change uh, the way you report it such that uh, instead of calling them water projects or school projects, you call them uh, something else like mm-hmm. education projects. That way you have a better separation of uh, even if it's a water project that is in school, then you just call it an education project. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So those are things that we grapple a lot with uh, separating uh, information so that it's more clear. Mm. We, yeah. Have you changed your approach? Have you found sometimes something you thought would have an impact didn't deliver or delivered a different impact? Have you altered your... Definitely several times. Yeah, that's uh, a good example. Yeah, uh, let me see one of uh, the good examples is ranger patrols. In the ranger patrol dataset, uh, we also ask our rangers to collect any information that they find on uh, what we call high conservation value species. Mm-hmm. You have these species which look similar, so somebody cannot tell whether it was a leopard <laughs> or a cheetah or a savocat. So sometimes you have to tell them, just write it in your mother tongue. Or so they write the, it in their mother tongue. And when uh, we come back, look at the data, then we know what it was. Right, right. Yeah, so sometimes uh, we do th- that. Sometimes uh, you have the problem of... Uh, Somebody saw a herd of elephants uh, and somebody else who was close by saw the same herd of elephants. So you have uh, that being reported twice. So if you record it, then you, you might get the problem of overestimation. Mm-hmm. So we came up with a method where you have a unique identifier. So you combine three things. You combine the ranger team, the GPS, and uh, the base station. Mm-hmm. So that way, you have a very unique identifier and uh, the risk of somebody reporting the same animal twice becomes, yeah. So you're constantly revising the way you manage the reporting yes. to make it more accurate. Yeah. Have you in this process found that your own interventions didn't deliver the results you wanted and you had to change what you did? Or have you just been dead on have you found that oh my god everything we did worked right not that i'm aware of Uh, Mm. most of uh, the interventions that we design have actually been successful well yeah (laughs) Uh, largely because we do take our time uh, before we go full throttle so we take a lot of due diligence uh, talk to people and ensure that uh, Everything that we are doing is 
it's easy to understand but also with a level of scientific rigor and cost effective don't want to do something that's sophisticated then we do it two times then we stop i didn't visit the project alone but with two other reporters henry cronk of opus and my former colleague steven donofrio of ecosystem marketplace steven asked a question that ended up becoming the most poignant of them all and he said i can leave that in the program so here he is the world we operate in on the other side outside of the field mm-hmm. is people call it climate benefits and that's the co2 and that's what we price and then co-benefits. Yes. Those are what gets certified, as you know, with CCB, yeah. SD Vista, whatever it is. But the process you described is that the carbon benefits are not possible without considering the co-benefits first. Yeah. And that the co-benefits are actually not co-benefits, they're enablers of the climate benefits. Yeah. And so if you could reflect on that for a second and actually reconsider the terminology that it's not really co-benefits, but it's these are essential attributes of a successful climate project that's, a, that's Red Plus. Yeah, that's a very good question. In our theory of change document, we actually do be, uh, recognize what you are calling co-benefits, CO as co-benefits, C-O-R-E. So it's not co-benefits, it's It's core benefits. Core benefits, particularly for a project like ours. Mm -hmm. These benefits are increasingly being recognized as core and essential to achieving the climate objectives. This is uh, why we have to address all these other issues that are around the carbon first, because those issues are the ones that might lead to us having problems with the carbon stock. I almost feel like the word co-benefits or even core benefits yeah. is underserving yes. their, their, their essential role. Yeah. It's like you can't drive a car yeah. without having the frame, exactly. the engine, yeah. the wheels, the axles. Definitely. All those are the core essential yes. components. Yeah. So thinking of it as core components yes. of a successful yeah. climate positive Red Plus project. Yes. Is how I'm hearing you describe yes. it. Yes, indeed. And uh, on your second part of the question is the we have the CCB as one of the standards uh, that we use and therefore we have to report not just the climate benefits, we also have to report the community benefits and the biodiversity benefits. Which brings me to our biodiversity theory of change because Mm -hmm. it's a separate theory of change. Because biodiversity, you can't involve communities mostly. You can involve them Mm. a bit, but you need experts, people who are actually knowledgeable about the biodiversity of the area. So we engage uh, stakeholders in the biodiversity sector Call them again to a meeting and we discuss issues that are of importance that we really need to think about to conserve biodiversity. So we ask them the same question. What does it mean to you for biodiversity of the area to be conserved? What are the things that we really need to look 
for. And so they give us things that they think we need to look for. And for biodiversity, we have four. We have habitat management. So ensuring that we have uh, vegetation cover. We have uh, safeguarding high conservation value species. Of human wildlife conflict came again in mm -hmm. the biodiversity theory of change. Mm -hmm. And the last one was corridor maintenance, ensuring that the corridor between east and south-west remains open. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we also now come up with indicators for those as well. So that's why we have HCV species, high conservation value species. The methods are also based on in-house reporting and fieldwork. Mm -hmm. In-house reporting, we are using ranger patrols to tell us what kind of biodiversity is out there because they are always in the field doing patrols and uh, doing uh, the walking and all that, the driving in the field. Then we have a framework in this theory of change that we call the pressure state response model. We have indicators that tell us what the pressure looks like. So we might have indicators, for example, things like population growth, things like a number of incidences recorded, maybe number of charcoal bugs that were recorded, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, then we have state indicators, is reports on wildlife populations. What are we seeing? Are we seeing elephants? Are we seeing wild dogs? Are we seeing lions? That is state. Mm -hmm. And then response indicators is what we are actually doing to respond to this. So we record, for example, the patrol distance. How many patrols were done in that month? How far or how many flights did the gyros go around the project mm -hmm. area? And we also map those. We map the tracks, we map the patrols so that we are able to know uh, the response, what mm -hmm. response we are. And that, all that uh, tells us what we need to do more. Do we need to do more on uh, the effort or do we need to do more on uh, the state? For the pressure, more often than not, for some indicators, it is beyond our scope. If we have population growth, that is not something that we can control. Right, right. But we do like to know about it so that we know how to also deal with these others. And none of these indicators that you've talked about are actually in the reports, the auditors, right? This is all your internal checks on how are we progressing towards the ultimate goal. Actually, many of these are in the monitoring reports. Mm -hmm. I think about half of the data that we collect goes into the monitoring reports. The rest of it is for our own internal use. As I mentioned before, we use adaptive management a lot. So we analyze this data periodically to check, to see where we need to put more effort and to check where we need to change things. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, one of the ones that we did recently was to look at the effect of wildlife on waterholes. Mm -hmm. Remember we said that we are providing water in the waterholes, but it's not always a good thing. Mm -hmm. 
because wildlife will tend to congregate on these waterholes and what happens is that there is trampling of vegetation especially during the dry areas so we have to measure that impact so we we have a group that measures uh, vegetation from the waterhole as you move out but so you're taking something that looks like a simple indicator yes number of animals around the water hole yeah success yes but no that's not really the case it's, yeah it could mean oh yeah, yeah definitely they're trampling everything else together. yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly so it could be successful on one side but on the other side mm -hmm. it has detrimental effect so we check which ones are the most affected and sometimes we have to make some interventions last month i think we closed some of the water holes mm -hmm. to allow wildlife to go to water holes that are less degraded we we use the data to make better decisions Gotcha. And what we do every five years, when we go to an SBA workshop, we review the focal issues. So we have done it once. Uh, so there was the original focal issues, which we reviewed in 2017. So they changed a bit. And now this year, we are going to review them again because five years have lapsed. So in June, we are going to another SBA workshop and we will do the focal issues again so that uh, we ensure that we are still focusing on the things that are important to the community at that particular time. So focal issues change over time. Sometimes they become less important because of maybe something changed. They Maybe they found that this is uh, no longer a focal issue or maybe we have addressed this focal issue enough. So maybe we need to change it uh, after five years. Being a wildlife corridor that has communities around it, uh, striving to grow food in an environment where human-wildlife conflict is a major issue, there is always an issue that comes up. One major, one big one now is the prolonged drought. It was identified in the theory of change. But at that time, rains were much more consistent. At least people are sure that every April and every October, we get a little rain. But now when you have a scenario where now we you don't have rain for two years, then it becomes a bit problematic. So we are thinking that this will be one of the major focal issues in the next review. Periodically, we have an influx of herders from other communities that come into the area. There's usually problems also associated with them. So we usually have to go back and uh, check and see how best we can deal with this. Because it's not just a Kasigao problem. It's a problem of the entire county and not just this county, even the neighboring county. So we do have sometimes problems like those that we have to think about addressing in the short term. What's fascinating here is you've got a theory of change. Yeah. You've got clear things that have worked in the past yeah. that you yeah. try to implement. Yeah. And then you've got things you can't foresee that you have to adapt to. Yeah. It, it all means you've got a classic wicked problem, something mm -hmm. that there really is no one single solution. Yeah. yeah. 
There are people out there who say it's too complicated. We shouldn't use carbon finance to address it because it's so complicated. We can't really be sure of anything. And this is like listening to what you're talking about and based on everything I've seen. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, there's uncertainties. Yeah. But the direction is clear. Yeah. But there are people who argue against carbon finance because what they're saying is, yeah, all these great theories, everything looks great, but something's always going to happen. Something's always going to go wrong. And they essentially argue we can't use carbon finance to do it because of the uncertainties. How would you address that concern? So that argument, that argument, I should say. Yeah. In one of our strategies, uh, we encourage adaptive management. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adaptive management is uh, being formed by the data you are collecting, the circumstances that are at that particular instance, and adapt accordingly. And as you have seen in our LCC model, the communities have the freedom to use their carbon finance as they wish, as long as they are adhering to the standard operating procedures. So Mm -hmm. there is that flexibility and there is that allowance for you to address things as they come. Because if you cast it too much on stone, you might not address the things that you really need to address. Mm -hmm. So if you don't address uh, the root cause of a problem, then you might not be addressing the things that you really need to address. So we encourage that we use adaptive management informed by best practice and also uh, adhere to standard that way you always have room to address problems as they come. Jeff Mwangi Wambugu wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet, and you also heard another voice in there. That was Stephen Donofrio, my former colleague at Ecosystem Marketplace. He was with me as we sat down to talk to Jeff. If you like the show and want more and better episodes, you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. By the same token, if you're an ethical business looking to reach a global climate-aware audience, you can sponsor the show by reaching out to me directly at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, you can support the show by giving me an honest five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. That wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Nairobi. Thanks for listening. Bionic Planet.